Welcome back to another episode of Veritas, the truth behind Asian Americans and affirmative action. I'm Eric, your host for this episode, and I'm joined by Sabrina. Hey everyone, Sabrina here. So before we get into the actual nitty gritty, I wanted to take a second and explain why I chose the topic of this episode. I feel like a lot of the conversation around the Harvard lawsuit is about the evidence of the case and trying to figure out whether Harvard actually discriminates against Asian Americans. But I also feel like there's a deeper philosophical debate behind these discussions that we're missing out on. What do you mean by philosophical exactly? Well, I just mean that everyone has certain values and beliefs about these big ideas like race, education, and affirmative action. And I feel like when we run into differences in these values and beliefs, well, that's when we get into heated arguments. But I think that also means that when we come to understand where the other side is coming from, we have the opportunity to be not only more civil, but also more fruitful in our discussions. Right. So we probably shouldn't take a debate about something like educational policy and turn it into a moral debate. Like, it would be wrong to judge the people who disagree with us and just say that they're all bad people. Exactly. A lot of my research comes from Michelle Moses. She's a professor of educational policy at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she wrote this great book called Living with Moral Disagreement, The Enduring Controversy About Affirmative Action. Now, I know that she personally has an opinion on the whole affirmative action debate, but in this book, she tries her best to give both sides a voice and explain where they both come from. I think she does a pretty good job, and I basically want to do the same thing here. That is, I want to give a voice to both sides of the debate around the Harvard lawsuit, because I think it's important for all of us to better understand how people on the other side of the fence are thinking and why they believe what they believe. Yeah, that definitely sounds important. But you're not basing this episode on just her book, right? Of course not. Our research team actually took a trip over to Boston in February of 2019 to watch the closing arguments of the trial at the Massachusetts U.S. District Court level. We're going to be starting off the episode with a review of some of the arguments that the Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, is making against Harvard. It'll be more about the logic behind arguments than about the facts and evidence of the case, though. I also draw from the work of Amartya Sen, an economics and philosophy professor at Harvard University, specifically his book called The Idea of Justice. Wait, can you speak more on that last idea? Like, what exactly does justice have to do with affirmative action? Right, so a big part of Moses' thesis in her book is the affirmative action debate is fundamentally a moral disagreement, or a disagreement on moral ideals such as equality and liberty. In fact, she argues that it's fundamentally a question of which of the two ideals is more important. She divides the debate kind of roughly into two sides, the egalitarians and the libertarians. From the egalitarian point of view, it is only when everyone has total equality that we can truly have liberty. So equality comes before liberty. On the other hand, the libertarian claims that we can only be equal when we are equally free, so liberty comes before equality. We need to ask then, which perspective is more right or more just? But what does that have to do with affirmative action? You kind of lost me after you said egalitarian. Well, I think Sen kind of captures the essence of the debate really well by framing it in the question, equality of what? The idea is that everyone is trying to uphold and promote equality, regardless of whether whether they're for or against affirmative action. The key question is, what do we mean when we say equality? What are we equalizing? The egalitarian would say that we should equalize opportunities by accounting for differences in life circumstances. The libertarian 
would say that we should equalize the liberties or property rights. He uses this really interesting metaphor of these three children who are fighting over a flute. Now, only two of them are relevant here, so I'm only going to mention them. So one child says that they should get the flute because they have the least number of toys out of the three. Kind of like what the egalitarian would say. Yep. Now, the other child would say that they should get the flute because they're the one who worked for and actually made the flute. And that would be the libertarian. Exactly. And it seems like while it might be more fair for the second child to get the flute, it might be more just, whatever that means, for the first child to get it. Especially if, say, the second child has lots of flutes and other toys. There's another way of looking at all of this. Both sides of the debate want equality, and the egalitarian would say that means we should be treated as equals, which would mean taking into account different starting points and life circumstances. But on the other hand, the libertarian would say that means we should be treated equally, regardless of all those other factors. Hmm. So the egalitarian would support affirmative action, while the libertarian would be fighting against it. Pretty much. What do you hope people will take away from this episode? Well, I'm definitely not trying to convince anybody to join one side of the debate or the other. I just want people to come away with a better understanding of both sides. As with a lot of political issues, I'm kind of worried that we all have this tendency to demonize or take ourselves to be morally superior to those who disagree with us. But I think it's important for all of us to grapple with the fact that this debate is just two competing ideas of what is right and just, and that both sides have legitimate arguments for believing what they believe. That's fair. Let's jump right in. Okay, so we're going to spend the rest of the episode simulating a mock debate between someone who supports affirmative action and someone who's against it. Please keep in mind that what we say here does not reflect what we personally believe. This is just a mock debate. We are simply presenting the arguments as best as I came to understand them from my research. So I'll be giving the pro-affirmative action side. And I'll be giving the anti-affirmative action side. I also intentionally left the debate open-ended. There really is no resolution because the whole point is to help you all better grapple with some of the reasons people believe what they believe. I should also say that I don't pretend to be perfectly representing either side of the case. I'm presenting only some of the possible arguments for either side. If you're either for or against affirmative action, but you believe what you believe for reasons other than what we say here, I think that's great and totally legitimate. Hopefully though, you'll still be able to take away something from this episode, even if it's just new reasons for you to believe what you believe. We also recognize that there's lots of discussion about how the quote-unquote Asian racial group is really broadly defined. Southeast Asian groups such as Cambodians, Hmong, and Filipinos are typically underrepresented in higher education, and studies have shown that affirmative action actually benefits them. We'll be focusing more on East Asian and South Asian groups, since that's where the most controversy is regarding whether affirmative action hurts them. And with that, on with the show. SFFA claims that because Asian Americans are, on average, scoring lower on the personal rating than all other racial groups, when all else is equal, they are less likely to be admitted. In other words, they need better qualifications to compensate for their lower ratings, so essentially they're held to a higher standard. Now, one explanation is that they actually deserve lower ratings. That is, as a group, Asian Americans are on average deficient in characteristics like kindness, charisma, humor, and leadership skills. But since I don't think anyone would expect Harvard to make such a racist claim, we won't consider this possibility. The other explanation, then, is that Asian Americans don't deserve the lower ratings, but are receiving them anyway. 
From here, there are two further possibilities. One is that Harvard is deliberately discriminating against Asian Americans to decrease their presence in the student body, in which case they are outright guilty. The other possibility is that Harvard is unintentionally giving these applicants lower personal ratings through unconscious racial stereotypes and biases. But a big part of SFFA's argument is that even in this case, Harvard can be found guilty if it was aware of the unintentional, maybe, discrimination, but did nothing to fix it. Any way you slice it, Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans and is therefore wrong in virtue of two premises. Firstly, racial discrimination is categorically wrong. People should be treated equally, that is, in the same way. To treat them differently on the basis of personal characteristics outside of their control, such as race, is always unjustified and therefore wrong. Secondly, merit, which can roughly be described as a function of ability and effort, is well reflected in one's quote-unquote stats, or the sum of one's academic performance, extracurricular activities, athletics, and other achievements or accolades. Thus, to admit person A over person B because they differ on some uncontrolled personal characteristics such as race, even though B's stats are better than A's, is to admit A over B, even though B deserves to be admitted more than A does. This decision would be unmeritocratic and therefore unfair, just as unfair as choosing based on the applicant's favorite colors or tastes in music. Fairness demands that Harvard admit those who most deserve to be admitted. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that Asian Americans do, on average, receive significantly lower personal ratings than others do. Still, this does not mean that Harvard is the source of the problem. The personal rating is derived from three sources, the personal essay, the interview, and the letters of recommendation. Now, the first two are directly evaluated by Harvard, but the letters of recommendation are ultimately determined by the high school teachers and guidance counselors. That means that even if Harvard were to have zero latent stereotypes or subconscious racial biases, Asian Americans' personal ratings could still be lower if high school teachers evaluate their students and write their letters with their own biases. This means that Harvard is not necessarily at fault. The problem may be spread throughout the system, specifically within the high schools. But you're forgetting that Harvard can still be found guilty so long as it is aware of the discrimination and does nothing for it. Let's assume you're right, and there's a widespread issue of racial biases in high school teachers. Then Harvard should take those letters with a grain of salt. If it suspects that an applicant's letters are biased, then perhaps it should even correct the error by giving that applicant's personal ratings a tip. Okay, for the sake of argument, let's suppose you're right. Ed Bloom says that if Harvard is found guilty of discriminating against Asian American applicants, race-conscious admissions should go. But does that really make sense? Is the logical conclusion really to abolish affirmative action and have entirely colorblind admissions? When we talk about discrimination, we're talking about a group being unfairly held to a higher standard than the baseline, or the majority, which in this case is white applicants. If your issue is that Asian American applicants are being held to a higher standard than white applicants are, then we should be focusing on policies that lower the standard for Asian Americans. What does that have to do with affirmative action? The standard that underrepresented minorities are held to has nothing to do with Asian Americans. But that's just your view of discrimination. We can also define it as taking the spots that should be given to the members of one group and handing them over to the less deserving members of another group. 
Under this view, affirmative action is not just related to discrimination, it's the cause of discrimination. The idea may be that Harvard wants to give more spots to underrepresented minorities, and it decided the best way to do so was to give the spots that would otherwise go to Asian Americans to those applicants. But because Harvard cannot execute this policy explicitly, it uses the guise of lower personal ratings to accomplish its goals. Okay, for the sake of argument, let's keep going with your definition of discrimination. Even then, I'm not convinced affirmative action should go because its benefits outweigh the harm of discrimination, such that it is overall justified to use race-conscious admissions. In other words, implementing colorblind admissions in order to avoid racial discrimination is actually worse than race-conscious admissions, because affirmative action would have to be sacrificed in the process. How could affirmative action be so good as to justify racial discrimination? Like I said before, isn't discrimination just always wrong? Well, even that point is controversial. In Regents of the University of California v. Backey, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman said, quote, In order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way. And in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them equally. Unquote. That was back in 1978. But in another case, in 2007, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, quote, The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, unquote. I take it that you would agree with Chief Justice Roberts here, but the point here is that it's honestly unclear whether racial discrimination is absolutely always wrong. Surely there are some situations where it could do more good than harm. So what's so good about affirmative action? There are a couple of popular justifications for it, and Michelle Moses actually puts them into two categories, moral justifications and instrumental justifications. The first type says that affirmative action is morally right, and the second says that the policy is useful. Okay, let's start with the moral justifications. The first one is that Harvard, as with all other elite institutions, should help atone for the historical inequalities and oppressions underrepresented minorities have suffered and continue to suffer. One easy way for it to do so is by actively recruiting more students from those groups. Wait. But didn't regents of the University of California versus Backey establish legal precedents that that rationale is unconstitutional? Like, we can't legally use reasoning related to historical reparations to admit students to college. You're right, which is the reason it doesn't show up much in the courtroom or in the media. Even so, it's something we can still think about when deciding which side we personally want to support. I mean, while I agree that remediation as a general principle is good, this particular case is different because we have to ask who is being blamed and therefore punished for these wrongdoings. Individual white or Asian American applicants can't be held responsible for entire systems of inequality and oppression, yet they have to bear the cost of affirmative action by having lower chances of being accepted. I'm not trying to say that white and Asian American students can't be racist, because they totally can be, but it's hard to pinpoint the blame of centuries-old structures of racism on any one individual or any tiny group of individuals that are applying to elite universities. That's a good point, but we can also think about a second moral justification, that in accordance with the values of social justice, we should be striving for a more racially integrated and socially equitable society, and affirmative action is a good means of working toward that. Well, that's just begging the question. After all, I would say that I'm actually the one upholding the true values of social justice, equal liberty and treatment for all, and the ability to live a life unhindered by or independent of the government. 
these moral justifications aren't working because they all just depend on the moral framework being applied. I have my own moral framework and you have your own, and we both think we're doing what's right. It sounds like we're right back to where we started. That's probably why Moses speculates that the instrumental justifications, or justifications based on how useful a policy is, are more politically advantageous. By building off a more objective criteria like usefulness, we may be more likely to come to an agreement. The first one Moses suggests is the economics justification. Affirmative action is beneficial because it helps raise more productive citizens from the areas of society that are typically less productive. That sounds like it has more to do with class than with race. And isn't Ed Bloom all for a class-based affirmative action? His whole idea is to get rid of just race in the admissions process and replace it with race-neutral alternatives, particularly class. Yeah, which is why you probably haven't heard of that justification much. What you've probably heard of far more is the rationale of diversity. Ultimately, it's what the case has come down to because it's the rationale that has gained the most legal backing and precedence over the years. The idea is that the ideal educational environment is a diverse one. That is, students learn far more and far better when they are surrounded by those with a variety of perspectives and backgrounds. Just to name a few benefits, exposure to different ideas and collaboration with different types of people can help students gain new insights about academic material or even just the world in general, challenge and refine their own views, and develop important soft skills related to teamwork. Likewise, universities play an important role in society in producing the next generation of leaders in all disciplines. We live in a multicultural society whether we like it or not, and these leaders must know how to work with people who are very different than them, not just personally but also racially. If affirmative action can promote diversity on school campuses, then it would be serving a compelling state good by raising up future leaders who are culturally competent and operating within a multicultural society. That argument only applies if we believe that Harvard actually cares about diversity. But do we? If it does, then it has failed to put its money where its mouth is. After all, your points pertain to diversity in every sense, not just for race. Yet, Harvard's campus is not as economically diverse as it should be. The Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper, published just two years ago that the median family income for students is $168,000 per year, three times the national median. How can Harvard expect to use the diversity rationale in court if it fails to actually take it seriously? It just claims to be acting in the name of diversity without actually caring about it. And even if Harvard did want more diversity, there's the whole diversity bargain thing at play, too. Basically, by trying to increase racial diversity on campus, it can be argued that it would be white students and not students of color that would benefit the most. That is, the way you're describing it, affirmative action seems to be serving white students more than the minority students it's helping to admit. After all, it's the white students who are most likely to be reaping all the benefits of being surrounded by peers of different backgrounds without having to simultaneously deal with the burdens of being a person of color. Plus, it's unclear how diversity can even be achieved in a constitutional way. And here's what I mean. If Harvard feels that one particular minority is underrepresented, then it obviously won't do to accept just one student from that minority, or two, or three students. There is some minimum level, however fuzzy it might be, at which that minority is sufficiently represented for there to be diversity. But accepting too many students from that minority might infringe on Harvard's ability to accept enough students from other racial groups. Diversity, then, is nothing more than a racial balance that needs to be struck, and it entails these ill-defined but ever-present minimums and maximums, or floors and ceilings, for how many students of each racial group can be admitted. 
Critically, even though they may be rather fuzzy, those floors and ceilings are basically just informal quotas. But quotas were deemed unconstitutional in regions of the University of California versus Backey. And even if they are deemed legally permissible, through whatever loopholes might exist or hoop jumping might be done, they're still kind of morally questionable. Well, there is one more justification that has been more implied than explicitly stated, both in Moses' book and in the Harvard courtroom. The argument is that race-conscious admissions is actually fairer than colorblind admissions. That is, using race is better for admitting the most deserving applicants. Moses points out that we need to distinguish between an ideal theory and a non-ideal theory of merit. SFFA's definition of merit as a function of ability and effort may be plausible, but its premise that merit is well reflected in one's stats is based on an ideal theory, that is, how an ideal version of the world would work. It misses out on the nuance of a non-ideal theory, because our world isn't an ideal world. It's filled with imperfections and structural and historical issues that need to be taken into consideration. Because of these structural and historical inequalities and forms of repression, someone who overcomes those obstacles may actually be more deserving than someone who hasn't faced as much adversity but has higher stats. In fact, ignoring these inequalities may actually be more discriminatory than taking them into account in the admissions process. In other words, colorblind admissions would actually be more discriminatory than race-conscious admissions? Exactly. Underrepresented minorities are by default discriminated against by both past and present inequalities. The only way to give them equal treatment, then, is to neutralize those historical and structural inequalities by giving them favorable treatment. But even if I agree with you about inequalities in general, how do we know that race has anything to do with it? The differences in achievement across racial groups might not be based on how they're treated, but on personal and cultural factors such as work ethic and the value of education. Sure, that could certainly be part of it, but I also think there is something to be said about how race alone can be a major factor in one's experience in society, regardless of those personal or cultural factors. I think there are important structural and personal forms of racism that are oppressing minorities, both in the past and the present. When we think about racism, we usually only think about the personal kind, specific individuals shouting racial slurs or refusing to serve someone because of their race. But there's also a broader, more deeply entrenched kind, the structural kind. That would be like how in America, most doctors are white. So when people of color come in as patients, they're much less likely than their white peers to form trusting, vulnerable relationships with their doctors because of this racial difference. And I'm not saying that these white doctors are deliberately being racist. It's more of a subconscious phenomenon, and it's spread throughout the healthcare system. Minorities have to deal with all sorts of structural racism, both growing up and as they live their lives, and we have to account for that. I disagree. I mean, I may not be exactly in their shoes, and I'm not saying racism isn't real. But if you're worried about the difficulties students face in reaching their levels of achievement, you should focus on something like the amount of access to resources and opportunities they have. And that's socioeconomic status. It's obvious how a student in poverty would be unable to amass accolades from research competitions or debate tournaments, but it's less obvious why a middle-class or upper-middle-class underrepresented minority applicant should have an advantage over a white applicant of the same class. With your reasoning, affirmative action should focus on boosting applicants who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, not racially underrepresented. Well, we both know that there is the obvious logistical issue of sustainability. Schools are, at the end of the day, businesses, and they can't make a profit if they too heavily recruit students in need of financial aid. Sure. 
but I still think that the social and academic effects of race, apart from personal cultural factors, are being ignored. That is, there may be structural reasons that suggest that the middle class or upper middle class underrepresented minority student does not necessarily have the same resources or opportunities as white students of the same income bracket. Financially, income is not the same thing as wealth. Two families can have the same annual income, but have different levels of wealth, which include assets such as properties, goods, and savings. Wealth, then, is generational, as assets can be passed down and inherited. Because racial minorities are far less likely than their white peers to have come from generations of wealth, even if one minority family climbs the socioeconomic ladder, they will probably be less wealthy than their class peers. Similarly, minorities that do climb the ladder are less likely to have the strong, extensive networks of professionals among friends and family that white families with generations of success do. And of course, these networks can play an important role in getting internships, learning about particular academic programs, etc. Finally, studies have shown that middle-class black families still experience residential segregation from their white economic peers and are more likely to live in lower-income areas despite their higher earnings. Crucially, where you live has major implications for the quality of education you get and the kinds of opportunities and resources available to you. Isn't this line of argument actually irrelevant to the lawsuit at hand? While it may relate to the importance of differentiating between minority and white applicants, it doesn't explain why Asian Americans should be held to a higher standard. After all, Asian Americans are minorities too. They have had their own long history of oppression and persecution in America, and they continue to struggle against racism even today. Plus, a significant number of them are also in the lower income brackets. Why should they be treated differently than other minorities in the application process? I mean, to answer that question, we need a much more in-depth look into the histories of each of these minority groups in America. To put it briefly, though, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, and it kept all immigrants of Asian descent from immigrating to the U.S. In fact, it was the first law to ever ban an entire racial group from immigrating to America just based on their race. And it wasn't repealed until 1943, at which point a measly 105 people were allowed to immigrate from China each year. Things didn't really change until the Immigration Act of 1965, which removed the immigration quota system for immigrants from many countries across the world. This meant that people could start immigrating from Asia in large numbers. But importantly, these policies favored highly educated professionals like doctors and scientists and their families. So what we saw was a huge influx of highly skilled workers who settled down and established strong networks and communities with their past knowledge and experience. That's a very, very different sort of story than, say, generations of black people being brought to the U.S. from the slave trade and eventually being freed from slavery only to remain persecuted and oppressed by the Jim Crow laws and everything else from the beginning of the 1900s. Differences in education and opportunities meant that these black communities didn't have the same jumpstart that Asian America did, with its sudden population of highly trained individuals. But this is starting to sound like the historical reparations argument, because basically you're saying that since certain racial groups had a more tragic history in the U.S., we should be giving them favorable treatment. And as we said before, that argument doesn't hold up in court. Plus, I'm not sure we want to get into an impression Olympics right now, trying to compare who's been more oppressed than whom. Because Asian Americans have had their fair share of persecution, too. Like how a lot of Asian immigrants had to build the transcontinental railroad while working in extreme conditions with barely any pay and far too often dying in the process. 
or like how Japanese Americans, and a lot of other Asian Americans for that matter, were placed into concentration camps during World War II because they were suspected of being spies. And how underrepresented Southeast Asian populations, such as Vietnamese, Hmong, and Cambodian Americans, often arrived to the states as refugees, not as highly trained professionals. And historical reparations can't be used in court. <sighs> Eric, race is complicated. Yeah, race is complicated. This debate itself has been somewhat of a tangled mess of arguments. So while we could keep talking for hours, this podcast episode must unfortunately come to an end. And like I said at the beginning, we're not trying to resolve the debate in any way. This was just to showcase some of the arguments for and against affirmative action that have been underlying the actual political and legal debates over the issue. We hope you took away a lot from this episode. At the very least, we hope you came to better understand where the other side is coming from, regardless of which side you agree with. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, you've been listening to Veritas, the truth behind Asian Americans and affirmative action. Hi, this is Professor Franklin Odo. These podcasts are products of a research colloquium that I taught in the American Studies Department of Amherst College. We are grateful for support from Associate Dean Austin Surratt and from Catherine Epstein, Provost and Dean of the Faculty at Amherst College.